My pappy said, son, you're gonna drive me to drinking if you don't stop driving that hot rod Lincoln. Have you heard Hot Rod Lincoln? That's correct. And that's what we're gonna be uh, driving with here for five different subjects today in the racing world. It's the Five to Go podcast. I'm Doug Fireball Turnbull here from WSB Radio in Atlanta, and you're also hearing us on the PRN channels of podcasts here. I manage our traffic team and get to fly in the skycopter each afternoon, and I love racing. I get to cover that sometimes for PRN. I'm joined on the other side of the counter today by Eric Von Hessler. From WSB as well, the Von Hessler Doctrine, weekdays at 9 a.m. That's correct, 9 to 11, and then you get a bonus podcast hour, so it's three hours. Yeah, so today Hey, this is my fourth hour. Yeah, and, it's, and you still give us just as much energy as you would as you gave to the first two or three hours of your show today. That's incredible. Uh, you know, you can't shut me up. <laughs> no, and we don't want to either. And I'll tell you one who cannot be shut up as well, all the way from Dawsonville, Georgia, out on the road today, and it sounds like he's ordered some takeout there. It's Dawsonville <laughs> Championship Mechanic Dan Elliott. Yep, it's Roadkill Cafe. <laughs> <laughs> what a great way, what a great intro then to talk about. We're not going to break down the whole race, but we are coming off of Talladega, and I feel like when Talladega is on our schedule, and it is twice a year for NASCAR, it, it, it dominates the week before and the week after. Most races, it's the week after you talk about it for a couple of days. Talladega, you've got to lead up several days into it. It's a crazy race, and then you've got to spend several days deconstructing it. And one talking point that's bounced around the NASCAR lexicon, and will get talked about on other podcasts, we try to, out, we try to do the opposite of what they do or, mm-hmm. or do different, but is if Talladega should be in NASCAR's playoffs. and we, So we dive in deep on five subjects here. We're going to make that the first Is one. Is that number one? I think we'll, we'll make that one be on the poll. Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s last race at Talladega, by the way, he finished seventh. He didn't quite get there to win. He had s- several bouts of adversity, but he won his first career poll at Talladega. Let's just, I mean... Yeah. How did he not want a pole there? Chase Elliott's won more poles at Talladega than Dale Jr. Yeah, has. That's surprising. And he knocked Chase off the pole, by the way, to get it there. He nipped him there, the last car to go out in the round of 12. But at the end of this Talladega race, 188 laps, 500 miles, no less than 10 of the 12 drivers that are left in NASCAR's playoffs even finished. Okay, or, or, or finished on the lead. I think it was two that finished on the lead lap, and then the 10 others either were knocked out of the race or finished a lap or two down. Uh, if, if Matt Kenseth was still on the track, but he was like 12th, 15th right. place or so. And Chase Elliott, I mean, we can go down the list of all the drivers, not doubt. But one of the talking points bouncing around this week is if this Talladega wild car, 52 card pickup kind of race should still be in NASCAR's playoffs. I'm not taking a position here, but I want to pitch to you first, Eric Von Hessler, since you're fresh off of three hours of radio. What do you think about the notion that Talladega shouldn't be in the playoffs? Well, you know, it makes you question the whole playoff concept if you're going to start doing that. Because it it didn't matter in the past because you were just accruing points throughout the season. These were just more races involved in the whole season. If you're going to do a playoff system, then I say yes. This is part of NASCAR racing, uh, what we used to call, they're not really restrictor plates anymore, are they? We used to call them restrictor plate racing. They but still call it plate racing, but yeah. now that there they are don't no actual, have carburetors yeah, anymore. There are no yeah. actual plates in there. But this is a part of NASCAR, so I would have to say, yeah, it should be part of the playoffs. Okay, so that that is Eric Von Hessler's take. Dan Elliott out on the road there. What do you think? It sounds like you're drafting somebody. <laughs> Let's uh, leave all of this in the, in the playoffs because it lends into what you're trying to find 
your championship deal. So let's leave it in the playoff and let's do one more thing. Let's uh, let's put a road course in there. Absolutely, I completely agree. The playoffs should have every kind of track that yep, you get in the reg- yeah in the regular season, so that your champion is somebody who's had to do well on all of those. Yep, great. Okay, so and and I and I feel you on that. So then, what what races would you swap in and out? And I know you don't have the list right in front of you here, but what are some races you would swap in and swap out? They're taking care of the road course thing by making Charlotte one less mile and a half and making it the Roval next year. Get used to that name. Yeah, we'll Ro- see. Roval. Is that going to be a third race there? No. Okay. No, it's going to replace the fall race. I the see. fall okay. race will become a road course race. So let's just say that's been taken care of. Mm. Is Does that satiate, Eric, your notion that they should have a more representative schedule in the no, playoffs? No, it doesn't to me because usually those Roval concepts, uh, they don't have hills, peaks and valleys. And to me, that's part of road racing is that you're going up and down hills. And I don't know what they're going to do at Charlotte, but usually they just kind of open up part parts of the infield, right? Like they do at Daytona. And, right. it, and it all ends up being flat until you go up on the track. Yeah, and, and it's going to be interesting, too, because I, from what I've heard, and I haven't seen deeply what that course is going to be, but that particular Roval is going to have like the entrance to the exit of pit road and the entrance to turn one are going to be very close to each other yeah and so they're you're hauling yeah. butt down the straightaway heavy braking zone and a heavy left-hand turn and then the guys are coming off pit road so no, i, don't I, know how I this would say die. i would like to see uh i'd like to see watkins Glen or something like that thrown in there so one of the one of the actual yes. intended road courses yeah. and then one thing that's also missing so you have mile and halves we've got dover that's in there that's its own kind of track uh richmond is going to be in the playoffs next year, okay. so that kind of takes. That, there's another short track. Bristol's still not in the playoffs. You don't have any of the two mile tracks. You got Michigan and Pocono, which are not the most heralded of racetracks, or Fontana. But no, you know what? I like I like Pocono. I'd put Pocono in there. I enjoy the. I, I like endurance racing, and I've always enjoyed Pocono races. So I would I would, I would throw that in there. Okay, so we've got Pocono in. We've got Watkins Glen maybe replacing Charlotte. So we don't go back to Charlotte, or do we put it back on the mile and a half and have it a second date? I haven't seen a race on the Roval yet, so I can't really say. Okay. So so we've got Charlotte. So, Dan Dan Elliott, what do you think about it? I know that you have your qualms about the playoffs in general, but if you had to switch up the playoff schedule to make it more representative, what would you do? You know, Doug, you can look this six ways to sundown, but it really comes down to one thing. You've got ovals throughout the whole thing, and a lot of these tracks are cookie-cutter tracks, the mile-and-a-half racetracks that if you run one, you run them all. So let's replace them with something um, just just different, but you got to consider Uh-oh. that uh, you've got, what, 10 races in the playoff? And yes. if you look at the season – how many different racetracks are there anyway? And how many different ones can you throw in the mix? Because when you run half a season, you've pretty much run every track so far anyway. Yeah. And it's hard to boil down into 10 races what half the season yep. would be. But it's certainly next year you're adding Vegas another mile and a half into the playoffs. But I think, but you're taking New Hampshire out of it. But and it's New another Hampshire mile and a half. It's another cookie cutter. Right. It, so they've taken and, another and step away like from what Eric, we wanted. You need they, something different. You need a variety in this deal to show your show your champion. And we look at too. So also, I guess that we're both agreeing that less mile and a half. Yeah. Whatever you got to put in there, less mile and a half. Yeah, and that gets complicated, yep. of course, yeah. because tracks have these five year sanctioning agreements, sure. and they have those based upon where their date's going to be, and then the weather plays into it as well. One reason Pocono and Michigan are run only two months apart is because even though it's hot as heck when you're up there during those months, you can't guarantee 
nice weather necessarily, although I'm sure September, October it could be acceptable for those. What's the length of the Roval going to be in Charlotte? What's the length of that deal? Uh, I'll look that up there. I don't have that. See, I don't have Jared Yamamoto, yes. your, your handsomest producer and all producer. He's sitting here looking up all the stuff while we were talking. It's kind of doing both. I can okay? force him to do it the next next week. Don't, don't, he's got enough on his plate. Right, don't force right. him to do it anymore. Mar, right. You know, Mark Aram. Mark Aram, those that aren't WSB listeners, this is Inside Baseball. Mark Aram the other day was like, hey, Jared, can you go set me up a production room real quick? And I was thinking, does Jared work for Mark? No, but he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't because he works hard. That's correct. A good producer will just do what they're told. <laughs> they don't care who's telling them. And he's very good at that. So we're, we're, we, just, we just sometimes come in here and wing it a little bit. Okay, so another angle of this, Denny Hamlin, who, who seemed to shape a lot of what we talked about last week, he said he thought that Talladega would be a great race to have before the playoffs, as in the the cutoff race, race number 26. Sure. Already they're shaking that up by moving Richmond inside the playoffs and putting the Brickyard as the cutoff race next year. So, Dan, I'll ask you first, would, and we're already saying keep it the same, but what do you think about the notion of, hey, let's put the 52-card pickup, wild card, uh, crazy, anybody could die, kind of, not, I mean die, but you know, anybody could be eliminated kind of race in the chase cutoff point instead of in the middle of it? You know, we're going to see so much stuff coming up because it's all about one thing. It's all about making this exciting and drawing fans. And, you know, how many seats are you going to have to take out now if this was Dale Jr.'s last race at Talladega? <laughs> how many more seats are you going to take out of Talladega now? Will it be a full house if he doesn't run there? What's it going to be like? You can keep shaking this up and shaking it up. And, at the end of the day, somebody's going to make the decision to do whatever they do, regardless of what we talk about. Yeah, I, just, uh, I, I, I can see that it would be very exciting if that was the, the last race uh, before you started the chase. I can understand what they're looking at there. I wouldn't mind it. It's interesting with, with uh, restrictor plate races. I know they're not restrictor plates anymore, but plate races, let's just call them. Governed. Um, governed. Governors governed. Them, yes. Governed <laughs> races. I, I would imagine that the drivers, for the most part, hate them. But they are fun to watch. They really they're you can't fun get to around watch. that. Yeah, they are. They are really fun to watch. To watch because it's basically like watching the Blue Angels fly in formation for four hours. And this one especially was, and I, I attribute some of that to being stage racing. The drivers came in knowing, hey, I need to get stage points. Yeah. If you're Matt Kenseth or somebody that was in the bottom of the chase standings, I need to get stage points. I can lose out on 20 potential points and two extra playoff points if I ride in the back all race and then make a charge to the front. If that, that riding yeah. in the back deal, that only applied yeah. to a few drivers. There was the drivers that couldn't get up to speed, like Cartersville's Mark Thompson, 66-year-old, making his first cup start in 25 years, who got crashed out uh, in the Jamie McMurray mess very early. Yeah. But but yeah, drivers like Ryan Newman, A.J. Allmendinger, Chris Busher that rode in the back and then decided to go forward later on. They, they could afford to do it. But any of the playoff yeah. drivers tried to stay in the yeah. top 10. It seemed to me that because of whatever the aero package is now, there doesn't seem to be as much back to the front racing as there they're, used to be. They're all just in a, a yeah. three-wide pack for yeah. sure. You got a question about the Charlotte Roval, by the way. It's 2.42 miles, and where the, where the drivers turn into the infield is right at the apex of the quad oval. They're right past the start-finish line is where they make that hard left-hand so turn. Sounds like Daytona. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah and I, I don't know how well you can see it if I turn it this way, Eric. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. but it's 13 turns, and turns 11, 12, and actually 10, 11, 12, and 13 are all up on the racing surface. Turn 10 is at turn 1, turn 11 is in 2, yeah. uh, 12 is in 3, and 13 is in 4. And then you have 
whatever's left, nine turns that actually go through the infield. So it's it's really interesting, and it does look like there is an elevation change built in there. Well, a that's bit. smart. That's smart <laughs> if they do that. So so why don't they do this like off road racing for the trucks and just put humps and divots and <laughs> yeah. and don't even pave. <laughs> Better that go back to to valences instead of yep. splitters then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and let's go back to the way racing used to be and have some fun. Hey, that sounds good. Well, let's talk about then as as things used to be. One one thing that I point to is that sort of my version of the olden days because I started watching it in one. It's sort of the height of Dale Jr. The number mm-hmm. eight Budweiser Chevrolet. The he's, glory years. He has now been in the '88 car for as many years when he finishes this season as he was in the eight car, which kind of makes yeah. my brain cave in on itself. Hard to believe. But I want to talk about the complicated legacy of Dale Jr. And I call it complicated for, for obvious reasons that we'll discuss because he's had the highest of highs, but then he's had the mediocrest of mediocrists too, maybe not the lowest of lows as far as on the track. And so I want to start out by saying, first off, Dale Jr. did not get to win in his final shot at Talladega. The place was almost sold out. They were obviously cheering when they thought he was going to take the lead and when he made it through crashes. And, it, and the storybook ending didn't happen there, and he may very well go through his final season not only missing the playoffs but not having won a race. But the last season normally is the determinant. We don't use that to judge Tony Stewart's career. So, Dan Elliott, I want to hit to you first here. As you've seen a lot of drivers, including your brother, go through brilliant careers and then have droughts in the middle of them. Can you sum up a little bit what Dale Jr. means to NASCAR? Is he Hall of Fame worthy? Is is he an elite driver? Is he a great driver, a good driver? How do you sum him up? You know, that's a hard question to ask because, or a hard question to answer because you look at this. Doug, I can remember when Dale Sr. went through his drought and he was asking the question, do I have it anymore? Can I do this anymore? Can I win anymore? And obviously he went on and won a lot and did a lot, but Richard Petty, I think, summed it up the best is each decade is different and each decade brings its own variety of drivers, better drivers, different cars because technology changes just like Bill and Dale had to go through the transition of bias ply tires to a radial and they said that was a tough transition to make and I believe it. And here you have technology moving forward, it's marching forward and the drivers, some can make that work, some can't because of the differences in the driving styles of the cars and the drivers and how they react. So hard question to answer because Dale in his own has done extremely well because let's look at one thing for sure. How would you like to follow in the footsteps of Dale Sr.? Right. And the pressure that's on that young man all his life and what he's had to deal with because some fans will probably say that no matter if he won every race, he still wouldn't be as good as his father. Well, certainly. I'd, in say, the- I'd say given the pressure that that young man has had to drive under and all the things that he's, that he's done, he's done extremely well. 26 career wins. Yeah, it puts him in two Daytona 500s. He's won in a lot of the big tracks, too. It's yeah. not been obscure. 26, two, wins, two 26 wins puts him in. He's starting to get into good company, right? What is, I mean, what is, Tony Stewart's is in the high 30s, right? I think Tony Stewart was just short of 50. I think he Oh, had, is he, yeah, he got into yeah, the 40s. Okay. Yeah, he did. So to me, once you get past 20 wins, you jump into a group of people. It's not a, it's not a fluke anymore. You are, right. a, you are a seasoned veteran driver. So, yeah. given what we've seen and where he's at, I agree. He's a good driver. And everybody, you have to look at now at all the drivers out there, and they are 
all in great equipment, all capable of winning any Sunday. Let's look at some of the drivers, just to, because you said, and I think that's a great point. I think because you're talking about 26 well, it's wins. It's been a long time. I mean, most yeah. of those wins happened probably before 2005 or well, six. That's or something, correct but, too. But, yeah. yeah. So you look at yeah. since he's gone to Hendrick, it's only been a yeah. handful. But in that, then in the glory years of his career, some drivers only had that brief time where they were. I mean, a lot of people look at Tim Richmond and they go, "Well, if only he'd stuck around longer, he'd be one of those drivers." And he didn't. But he did in a short time. Herb Thomas, who has 48 career wins. Only ran a few years, and it was the same with Fred Lorenzo. They didn't run yeah. a long time. But, but those guys used to run like 75 races a year. Some of them did. I think in yeah. the Herb Thomas era, era though, he has a, the, the highest winning percentage okay. in history because of the low. Here's some of the drivers that have less than Dale Jr. Buddy Baker, hmm. who's going to the Hall of Fame. Davey Allison. Speedy Thompson. Jack Smith. And here we go. Benny Parsons is in the Hall with a championship. 21 career wins. Bobby Labonte. Jeff Burton, Terry Labonte, these are all 21-22 wins. Ricky Rudd had only 23. 24 wins goes to Brad Keselowski, by the way, who's about to take the mantle from Junior as one of the best plate racers at Talladega. Joe Weatherly, who's gone into the hall, 25 wins. Jim Paschal, 25. Fred Lorenzen, 26. Dale Jr. and Rex White each have 26 career wins. Uh, excuse me, Rex White has 28, Dale Jr. 26. So, yeah. And Rex White just went in with one championship. Carl Edwards. Well, see, that's the same thing with Betty Parsons. They do have the one championship. They do have the one championship. Junior has a couple of Xfinity titles, and they just put Ron Hornaday in okay. with, with, I think, four or five truck titles. And just ahead of Dale Jr., you have Carl Edwards and Rex White with 28 wins, Kurt Busch with 29, Denny Hamlin, 31. But see, here's a good point. So you start Carl, Edwards, the Carl Edwards will never be in the Hall of Fame. Um, I, I don't think. I don't think he'll ever be in the Hall of Fame, and yet he won all those races in – just a handful of years. How long was he correct. in the sport? 13, 12, 13 seasons? Right. Like and one Xfinity Series title, no cup titles, no Daytona 500s. No, right. Uh, no, he did win the Southern 500. Yeah. Didn't win any brickyards. So, uh, so go, yeah. going back to Dale, uh, look, he's had a great career in in many ways. It's just one of those careers that and it happens in motorsports where the last part of the career just isn't as – you just don't win as many as many races as you did in the first part. But what I uh, my thing if I can be critical of him as a driver a little bit, I think that Dale Jr. still to this day, if he could find himself in the top, you know, racing for a win with ten laps to go, and I'm not I'm not talking about a restrictor plate race. I'm talking about just a, a different kind of on a, on a regular track. I think he still has the skills as a driver. What I've noticed maybe that fell off over the years was his ability to keep up with the sport so that he could help his crew chief, and he's had several, yeah. get the car into the top five at the end of the race. It seems like Junior uh, is there in the middle of the race so often, like knocking on the door, 12th, 8th, yes. somewhere in there. And then when you get to the last 50 laps, he's a lap down or he's in the 20s. And I'm only speculating here, but I feel like in some way – the sport did move past him, and I think that if there's anything I would say, guys like Jimmy Johnson uh, communicate what's going on with the car to their crew chief better. That's the only thing I can speculate certainly, on. Certainly, certainly. The only thing, Doug, that I can say is also, too, maybe the concussion mm-hmm. has made a big difference in the edge that you've got to have to produce wins. I think so, for sure. And he even talked about after – he went and did a media availability after his final Talladega race on Sunday, and he told people, I'm just glad I made it out of there. Yeah. He said, I didn't yeah. drive like I might get a concussion. I tried to put that fear in the back of my mind. 
But I think if there's if he lost one percent edge, I feel like there's such a small difference in percentage of edge, if you will, between the front and the back. That if you're just a little bit off, and then if the team's a little bit off, Hendrick has not been a great team this year. They've been a good team, not a great team. That's why he's running 17th a lot of weeks. And by the way, we asked about career wins and when they happened. Let's divide his career into two phases, pre-Hendrick and during Hendrick. And when he was in the eight car, he got 19 of his 26 career wins going through 2007. That was eight full seasons. And here he is with Hendrick Motorsports now about to complete his 10th full season. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Eight through 17th. That's, yeah. Okay. 10 full seasons. And he has only got nine of those 16 wins, or nine of those uh, 26 wins. And you got to remember, it was the, at the very end of the eight car. The, the, the trouble started happening at the end yeah. of the eight car. Uh, when, he, when he just missed out, I was at the race mm-hmm. in 2004 at Atlanta Motor Speedway. And when, when he and Carl Edwards got together on the back straightaway and it turned him around and into the wall, it kind of ended his championship hopes, really put a big big question mark on them. And that was the year he won six races and really had the breakout year. And it, and then they changed crew chiefs. That they took Tony Urey Jr. Yeah. off, put Pete Rondeau as the crew chief, and it just went off from after that. He kind of, you know, it just... It was I, never the same. After but that. Uh, you know, all this being said, Dale Jr. has been great for NASCAR, and NASCAR is going to miss him. What Dan was talking about earlier, Will Talladega, which has continued to have good attendance even in a period of time when many tracks in the South don't have good attendance. But uh, Dale Jr. is the the king, the mayor, the everything over there. Will that continue after he leaves? I don't know. I, I, I've yeah, gone he's to Talladega. Been a poster child, not only for NASCAR but a lot of the races, especially in the South. So. Let's see how that plays out because um, what um, what will he do after he retires? Well, he's good in the booth if he goes he's, up he's there. He's going to be on NBC in the booth. Yeah, he's very he's, good. Okay. He's, yeah, he's going to be in the booth, and he also is still going to own Junior Motorsports, which, I mean, I think you got to throw that in part of his resume. Now, sure. now they're a formidable team. And it's not all just rent-a-ride drivers or cup drivers. I mean, it's people that are bona fide Xfinity Series all right, drivers. So come right down to it. Do you think he will get in the Hall of Fame? I, I think he will. I think he will. I think because because of the popularity factor. That's the yeah. one that puts him over the edge. Yeah. The, yeah. the statistics are right there. But for what he's done for the sport otherwise, Ken Squire just got put yeah. in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. I love Ken Squire. He has zero career race yeah. wins, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, different people the make cl- it. I mean, if, you're the, <laughs> if you're the Hall of Fame people, you have to ask yourself the question, do we want people to come to the Hall of Fame? And putting Dale Jr. in the Hall of Fame is going to get more people to come to the Hall of Fame. And just thinking about the people that vote on him, and you all know how this process goes. They have luminaries from the sport, media, drivers, Hall of Fame members, and they all get in a room and have a big discussion and then come up with the list of the nominees and then go from there. But with that being said, we're talking about a different kind of sport here, right? Because if this was baseball, he would not get in the Hall of Fame. Probably not. Popular players who are more popular than their stats don't get in the Hall of Fame. But that's okay because motorsports is a different animal. And baseball is different, too, because they don't have the motive. We've got to put five in each year. Right, yeah. <laughs> you don't put yeah. five in each year. There's, there's, wasn't it recently they had nobody go in or just one? Yeah. I think yeah. the year Barry Larkin went in, I yeah. think it was just him. I think I may, I don't – I'm no baseball <laughs> aficionado. Fake news, fake news. And I, yeah. I'm not sure where – but – but yeah, yeah the, you don't have to get a certain percentage. News, yeah, Doug really. Turnbull. The five to go podcast purveyors of fake news. <laughs> so yes, so a complicated legacy for sure. By the way, congratulations to Dale and Amy Earnhardt just announcing that she is pregnant with oh, a baby girl. Well, very good. So if they name her Dale the Third, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, please but, do it. And this has to be said. I mean, he has been great for the sport. He is. He has driven a lot of ticket sales, and that counts for something. I mean, he's been a very good spokesperson for the sport, and he's really seems to have matured in the last 
few years. Maybe the concussion had something to do with that. I think it did. But he, but he was great in his wild years too. He was great for the yeah. sport then, and he's uh, he's been. Uh, you can tell he's going to mature into a, a a great elder of the sport as well. He's been very vocal in recent times and done some features on ESPN and mm-hmm. wrote, written about and talked about how when he first went to the '88 car, he was a totally different person and all the pressure. He felt like just changed him, and he was a real—he was a diva, pretty much. He, yeah. He would st- he would come be late to practice. He'd leave right after practice was over, and it wasn't until Steve Latart became his crew chief and was both strict with him, but then gave him gave him his room yeah. team moat that it that it really gelled, and that's right around. 2012, 2013, when things started picking Can I say up. Again. I think the, the the years with his cousin, nothing against him. I don't think that was good for Dale because no, it was that was family. his crew chief in the ADA. Yeah, yeah, that was his family, and he was able to kind of, I, I think, uh, throw his weight around. Exactly, exactly. Don't, don't forget the most famous back in the day. The most famous back in the day. Uh, back in the day. You talk about Dale Hart Jr. Back in the day. Oh, the the TV show back in the day. Back in the day. Oh, yeah. No. I love that. And they've kind of brought that back. They don't call it back in the day, but it's this, sh- it's this company, Hammerhead Productions, that now does recaps of races. And I think they do them on NBC and on FS1 or something. They, yeah, they I do a, love to watch those races from the 70s. And it's fantastic. Dude, YouTube is great. If I'd had YouTube. Although all the, all the, all the effects are thrown in later. You know, yeah. like a car, like cars spin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like they don't have any sound at the track in 1974. My favorite one of yeah, those. What, what was that show that Bud Lindemann used to put on that you used to watch on Sunday mornings? It was the only show. Well, it's it's what, he, it's what he it's what he repackaged. Yeah, well, it's what he repackaged back in the day. From Bud Lindemann was the guy that right. was voicing over those old races. I don't know what that it was a. It was a car and driver. I don't. I don't know what it was called. I think that they used to use them uh, periodically, like on ABC, Wide World of Sports, and things like that, to bring you up to date. Uh, because they didn't show car and the, track. Yeah, car and track. That's it. But back then, they didn't show races live, so you'd see them. You'd see uh, a package that would show you what happened at the race last week. They had these old Southern 500s that were boiled down into little half-hour specials, yeah. and it would start out not with the green flag or with qualifying. It would start out with What's going on in Darlington? And then the parade, yeah. the Dixie parade. Oh, oh, I just said Dixie, yeah. but the Dixie parade yeah. and then the Miss Southern 500 contest and all the drivers getting to judge. You know, stuff that now yeah. there would be all sorts of safe spaces created. <laughs> triggers. Of, yeah, triggers and, and so forth. I, right or wrong. That's what would happen. And so, But the, my favorite one of those was the 1953, I think it was, Southern 500. Junior Johnson crashed. In the middle of the track, his car sets on fire. He gets out, and this is when they still race back to the flag, takes off his shirt and is standing in the middle of the track with the car zooming by and putting out the fire with his shirt <laughs> <Yes>. off. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's a great photo. I know it's the same crash. There's a great photo where he is the, he's flipping, and it was a series of photos that I used to have. And in the middle of the photos, he is, he's outstanding outside of the car as the car continues. <laughs> 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 no idea how this happened, but I've seen this series of photos. It's just amazing. Yeah, that's incredible. Hey, we're lucky, by the way. No cars really. That no got upside down at Talladega this weekend. I'm tr- at the truck race. There's a couple that got airborne. Yeah. When McMurray got hit as he was coming to pit can road. I, can I tell you that yeah. almost happened twice though? Because didn't uh, uh, I mean that turned into a big accident. And then uh, there was a near big accident, Johnson. Jimmy Johnson. Yes. So that's obviously a thing now. 
Uh, is it because well, of the stage racing? Because people so late. I, I don't know why. Although they were going very early, right? They were. They so were they that's were, that's what right, the difference was. Right. People usually would all pit at the same time at the end of their fuel run because of the stage but racing. Now they, they go had fourteen the, laps. Yeah, get, they were, get it so they can race to the exactly. end. Exactly. So right. the Fords had a plan to pit together. The Chevy, you know, some yeah. of the Chevys did, some of the Toyotas did, and and Johnson was waving out of his window, thinking everybody knew. Yeah. Well, and so was McMurray. Murray's the case. McMurray's case. He was high up. He on was the track. he was high up the track. He just assumed. He saw all these cars coming. He thought everybody was coming. He yeah. drove right across Eric Jones's nose. Here's another kicker, by the way. Eric Jones stayed out on the racetrack. If you saw, it was a, it was a bad wreck, but it was like a 20 minute caution. Yeah, yeah. Eric Jones's car stayed out on the racetrack. They didn't show this on TV and just oiled the track down. Yeah. He just kept driving. And so NASCAR, this was on lap 20 or so. NASCAR calls Eric Jones, his crew chief Chris Gale, and his spotter Rick Corelli to the holler after the race so they're used to jetting out of there when the car crashes early they yeah. had to wait the whole Stick time around and, yeah. sit there. and for all the traffic four and a half hour race <laughs> to meet with nascar and get their well if they knew what they, if yeah. they were if they knew what they were doing they deserved it right and yeah. who knows where the miscommunication was yeah. another miscommunication by the way is jimmy johnson thought he was going to be able to at least make a lap around the racetrack and pick up spots when he was in the big one that that happened that really took out most of the chase the playoff drivers and Johnson's spotter told them the red flag was lifted. And uh -uh. so they began to work on the car, but NASCAR had not told the teams. So the, the, I think NASCAR had told the drivers to fire the engines, so spotter Earl Barbin said, hey, you're good to go. And so they started working on Johnson's crash damage just so he could make one lap. Now, the rule is, is if you work on a car under a red flag, you automatically are out of the race. Yeah. So and that's so bad that, communication. And so, and so he <laughs> lost maybe five or ten points because he would have passed all the cars in the wreck. And so that brings me actually to our next question. Subject number three. Yes. And that is NASCAR's crash damage rules this year were made to keep teams from spending thousands of dollars putting cars back together to put themselves in more dangerous situations and as a cost-cutting measure. You have the five-minute crash clock. If you get any damage that's caused by a wreck, even if it's your radiator or something inside the car, if you can't fix it within five minutes on pit road, you're done. Also, another rule is if you have too many people over the wall fixing that damage, you're automatically out of the race. And if you work on it, like I said, during the red flag. So, uh, Eric, I'll come to you first. NASCAR's really strict rules about being able to fix race cars, especially in a carnage-filled race like Talladega, good or bad? Uh, I think in general it's good. The restrictor plate stuff is always the hardest because... 10 or 15 great cars can go out at one time and then you wonder if they waive the rule in that situation or something like that but for the most part I think it's it's been good I think it does save money and it also probably cuts down on late cautions yeah. because you had so many people out there throwing parts on the track in the old days. One of them that they point to before I get to you Dan is when Carl Edwards at Talladega last May 2016 one of the wrecks that got Dale Jr. kind of it, it sort of toward the concussion is Carl Edwards was out on the racetrack, cut a tire, and just ran right into Junior. Yeah. And Edwards was not going to win. He was just out there making laps. So, Dan Elliott, you've seen a lot of races. You've officiated and been the general manager of a racetrack and then been on the competition side, of course, with the Elliott family racing team. What do you think about NASCAR's crash rules? You know, I'm not too, I'm not too fond of the crash rules. I think that, um, yes, there are situations to where that um, – You've got to make sure that the car is put back together. And NASCAR does have officials there. As you do rebuild the car, whether it's on pit road or whether it's in the garage, and they kind of oversee that operation and make sure that everything is the way it should be before it goes back out. Yes, there's probably a, a time or two that things are missed, 
in the perspective of I don't like the crash rule. I wish they'd go back and forget about that. But, you know, you'd rather err on the side of safety because you don't want to see anybody get hurt. But also, too, eliminates a lot of people just like the wrecks this weekend. Some of those cars could have been repaired and not been a danger because NASCAR did have a rule that you had to run a certain speed after the after the crash and you repaired your car. So there were ways, better ways to do this, I think, than what they did. But as I said, rather err on the side of safety. And here's one antithesis to it being safe, is if a team manages to patch that thing just together enough to go make minimum speed within five minutes, they could go out there and be even less safe than if they actually had the full you know, crash carts where they could bolt on the different pieces of sheet metal. I don't know if you saw David Reagan, who, I mean, it was he and Truex coming together, but Reagan hit about four playoff drivers in the big one, mm-hmm. okay? He hit Stenhouse, he hit Johnson, uh, Kurt Busch, and maybe one other. And, and Kurt Busch is out of the playoffs. But he hit, so, And Reagan's car, all four corners were tore up. But it wasn't bad enough to the suspension on the car that they could go behind the wall. And so they taped up all four corners of the car. It looked like it had a parachute behind it. And he finished 10th. Yeah. Well, uh, but I mean, that's. <laughs> Which is great for our Georgia drivers, by yeah, the way. Yeah. <laughs> no matter what the rules are, racing is always going to have uh, sort of like weird, odd. Odd things like that are going to happen in racing just by the the nature of it. I sometimes wonder about uh, if the advertisers uh, uh, like like this rule because you used to go the out sponsors, there. Yeah. The, the sponsors, that's what I mean. And Jamie May Murray was sponsored by Cessna, yeah. and he crashed on lap 20, race yeah. over. Right, right, so I think they used to like the idea that you were out there just running around with their logo for the rest of the race. Not on TV, unless Not you get another TV. wreck, <laughs> but, no. but on the track. We're yeah. talking about going back to a time where there were a lot of people in the stands. That that too. Yeah. So so the, yeah, and that's an interesting take. I seem to I think they're what they're trying to accomplish is good, but there's always something that's going to happen within it, like what happened with Johnson, where there was a miscommunication. They weren't trying to cheat necessarily, and they mm-hmm. got bit by it. So that's that's just how it goes over there. But I think overall. It's, I think it's better to have the 10 good cars on the track instead of a bunch of buckets yeah. of bolts down there causing debris cautions and potentially making more wrecks. Yeah, so I don't uh, Dougie, look at it this way. The cautions, as uh, Daryl always said, cautions breed more cautions. So you keep the field lumped together better and nobody gets a, a, a real direct advantage. Oh, that's true. Yeah. That's true. There, there was somebody kicking around the idea. I was listening to this uh, Door Bumper Clear podcast with the two spotters from Junior Motorsports Xfinity Series teams. It's, uh, somebody tweeted into them and asked the question, should teams be able to have a playoff, be able to have timeouts? They could use one timeout a year to put the whole field under caution just like in other professional sports. I was thinking, oh, hell no. <laughs> no. <laughs> because just be, the races already go long enough. By yeah. the way, there were three red flags Sunday for a total of over 35 minutes, and I'm just wondering if the whole cleanup process is slow down it just seems well talladega is a huge track yeah. so I, I imagine it's if it, if that had happened at bristol we'd be more upset yeah, they, about it but 17 I mean, of them don't wreck at bristol yeah, usually. yeah it's <laughs> a huge it's a huge track so i'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt so i want to go i want to go another one here with to do with the playoffs kyle bush is although he, he should have probably won about eight or nine races this year but he has i think three race wins and he has a ton of playoff points but he now is in a scenario because of crashing about four times at Charlotte a couple of weeks ago, and now at Talladega being eliminated in the big, big one, that he is ninth in the standing, seven points behind eighth-place Jimmy Johnson to make the round of eight with the cutoff race being Kansas coming up. is the, Dan, you're always somebody that champions 
season-long body of work and accomplishment to be able to crown the champion is this right here after Kyle Busch winning two races in a row and looking like the best driver in the sport he has two bad weekends and he's almost out of the playoffs is this your problem with the playoff system right here yeah it really is it's the luck of the draw but you know it's the one it's the system that got him in to win the chase and it's the one that may come in and take him out of the chase so live by the sword die by the sword and it goes back to what what we had talked about before is i'd love to see a champion be a champion run all the races and and the best finishes and that determines your champion yeah it all has it all depends on whether or not you like the playoff system but the playoff system let's face it they were trying to make it more like other sports and playoff systems in other sports sometimes the best team loses one game they shouldn't yeah. lose and everybody knows they're the best team and they're gone so the if there's an upside to the playoff system this is the downside you know the two years the new york giants recently won the Super Bowl, yeah, they, they were, were wild, wild card, they, teams. Wild card yeah. teams that barely got in, and they beat a bunch of teams. They just got hot at the and, right time. And the San Francisco Giants kind of the same way. I think yeah. two of their three recent World Series yeah. were they were wild card teams. So that's the up and down of a playoff-like system. If you go back to the old days, you're right. It's going to be the entire year, and your entire season is going to be a body of work. But if you're going to have a playoff season, that means you're going to lose. Uh, some people are going to get hot at the right time, and some people are going to get cold at the wrong time. And one thing that was to the detriment of Kyle Busch is that all of the drivers that he was in the wrecks with, he, it all happened around the same time. It's not as if they all crashed. If, you know, somebody, right. let's say Jamie Murray was the only one he really gained much ground on. Matt Kins at the Ricky Stenhouse were in the same wreck as him, and so was Jimmy Johnson. Those are the two drivers behind him and the one in front of him in the standings. Yeah. They all were eliminated at the same time, so he had no ground to gain yeah. on any of them. And then at Charlotte, there were not many crashes. He was all the crashes. <laughs> at Charlotte. Yeah. And so he finished, I think, still like 29th or 30th. That all the playoff drivers are that much further ahead. The playoff system is not for the drivers. It's for the fans. It should be judged on whether or not it brings in more fans. Exactly. And it doesn't seem that that's the case right no. now, but you almost wonder if you would have lost more if you didn't have It's It's yeah. double-edged sword. Okay, last one here. Sunday's race was great, but Saturday at Talladega – was that was another just just carnivore fest? I mean, there was not many trucks left running there for the Truck Series Fred's 250, and at the end of it, none other than NBC pit reporter Parker Kligerman, who was, <laughs> used to be a Penske development driver, rose through. He kept the Henderson Motorsports number 75 up near the front most of the day, drove very aggressively, and he was able to win at Talladega. So uh, let's go to you, Dan. You've seen a lot of small teams over the years, not the least of which being your own back before you all were champions and that famous number nine out of Dawsonville. What is maybe one of your favorite small teams coming to glory stories, whether they just won one race ever or one obscure driver won, or whether it was a whole team that went from, from ashes to the top? You know, going back through the career, there, there were a lot of teams like that because you can think of several teams that have done that. You know, you look at Derek Cope. Oh, yeah. You look at... Um, Whitcomb Racing. Yeah. Yeah, Whitcomb Racing. You look at several teams that's been able to be at the right place at the right time and put it together. And I would say that deal, because that deal for Derek, that was a Daytona 500. That was a awesome deal. Dale, uh, Dale Earnhardt cuts a tire in the last turn, I think it was, mm -hmm. or turn three. Yep, and yeah. and he comes in and drops down. But but you also have to put yourself in position. And and whether it's one time or another, and, you know, I'll tell you another one was 
wasn't it Jody Ridley that won for Junie Donlevy at Dover? Dover. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, you know, you, you look at those events and you're so happy for these people because they run their hearts out and they're there because they compete because there's always that chance that today's going to be the day. The lottery, the lottery couldn't say any better. Today could be the day. <laughs> okay, so so you go and you put yourself in that position. You 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 run as hard as you can run. You put yourself in that position, and hopefully, fate and and luck and everything else and 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 the day's going to follow your way. Erica, small I, team story. Yeah. I agree with uh, those uh, race day examples, but I think you can't. For me, the bet the the greatest small team making big of all time is Colwicky winning yeah. the championship uh with his with with his team to me that's the that's the greatest small team now maybe Birds. maybe you don't consider them i don't know if they're con- completely considered independent but i thought of alan kawicki as driver owner and independent there were people that tried to bring that driver owner narrative when Stewart started Stewart Haas racing. I'm like, yeah, but, but even Gene he, Haas, oh, yeah. yeah, even Tony Stewart kind of knocked made that, it. Yeah, He'd he knocked that one down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Kowicki got there. Hey, here's another one. What do you all think of? Because this example that I'm saying is going to be applied, especially if they win the championship to Furniture Row Racing. This is a team that was missing races that had a guy named Jerry Robertson or something. I forget his name. Roberson that was driving yeah. for him in the yeah. Xfinity Series. Kenny Wallace and Joe Nemechek, they didn't do so hot. Regan Smith did win the Southern 500. That's a good candidate for one yeah. right there in 2011. But they really didn't have any kind of cohesiveness into success until, until Kurt Busch got there. Until Kurt Busch got there. Yeah. But they didn't really win often until Truex got there. And it wasn't just when they switched to Joe Gibbs Racing. It was when they, at first they were a Childress affiliate uh, up until before last year. Now I have questions about this. I always the idea has always been because they're not in Charlotte, they're located in Denver, right? The idea is that uh, that that would that would harm them. Now, on the other hand, they must, I would think, attract all the best uh, people that are out west, right? But if you're out west, you That's no longer you you no longer have to travel all the way to Charlotte to get a job with a team. So it may be that what hurt them at first by being away from Charlotte is now helping them because anybody from the Midwest over to the West, if you're good at what you do, they may sweep that area and get all the best talent. I think the follow the money. Yeah. <laughs> also, I think if, yeah. if you could follow the money and they have that, I, I just think it's interesting because they, they've obviously had to bankroll. Furniture Row Racing is a, Furniture Row is a furniture store. Yeah. And so Barney Visser has had to dig into his own pocket for years and just say, hey, this is my passion project. <laughs> yeah. This is what we're doing. Well, that was, and then they have a Charlotte kind of satellite affiliation yeah. where they have mercenaries that go between the two. And then they have to drag their cars to Charlotte mm-hmm. to get their chassis have to be approved by NASCAR. So yeah. they, they do have a logistical you know, nightmare. It so is a logistical nightmare. That's absolutely correct. And you look at this and you think whoever human resources is that put all this together, Doug, it's phenomenal that they've been able to put together and assemble this group of people because obviously the chemistry is all correct. Obviously, yeah, for sure. And so I wanted to point out another one too. So I think Furniture Row, if they win a championship, just because we haven't seen, just like we've talked about in the previous four episodes of this podcast, many new teams enter the sport and do squat. Another team that I want to talk about, or another instance of a small team winning, is I think about how David Gilliland got into the Cup Series 
It did not end up being an illustrious cup career, but he won the, a Kentucky standalone Xfinity race in the summer of 2006 for Clay Andrews Racing, beating the Gibbses, Childers, yeah. Penske teams. Impressed everybody. At Clay Andrews Racing, and where have they been ever since? And then that suddenly got him into the cup series. I just think that's a really good one. And really, even Kligerman's case, look, any of these small teams could win at, 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 at a plate race. But... Henderson Motorsports runs a part-time schedule. Kligerman is a part-time driver, and they put it together. I think that's incredible. Yeah, I watched that race. I enjoyed that race. I, sometimes the truck racing at the restrictor, do they actually use any kind of restriction on the oh, trucks yeah. as yeah. well? Uh, I thought for a while they didn't. But on the, uh, I find those races sometimes to be better than the actual cup races. And the first, I think the last time that Henderson Motorsports had won anything in NASCAR is Rick Wilson <laughs> the guy that replaced Richard Petty, <laughs> that's, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. That's who it was. Rick Wilson won in 1989 in the Xfinity yeah. Series for Henderson Motorsports. They used to run yeah. pretty much the full schedule. And I like Kligerman. Cool. He's good. He's good on it. He's he's good on television as well. He's, he's good. He's good on NBC. He's good on social media, and he's a good yeah. writer, and he's well rounded. So I hope that he could stick around. He has doing a love that. for the sport. That's a small team. You like to see it. Yeah, for sure. Another one, too, by the way, got to stick Georgia driver since I was at Talladega in May of 2013 when David Reagan and yes. David Gillen went to the front with Front Row Motorsports to beat Carl Edwards there at the end. And that was electric. That, that was, really was. And Reagan again, won that race, right? Yes, yeah. Reagan won. It was after because he should have won the Daytona 500. In 2011, uh, yeah. With the. Uh, Made a little mistake there at the end. Do with Roush, yeah, and then he went back to one. Speed? Did he speed on? Uh, he switched lanes before the start finish line, right. and that's what that's, that's how what Trevor Bain. Hey, Trevor Bain winning the five hundred. I mean, these are all plate races, though, except for that Kentucky one. That's the well. That's the thing about the plate race is that uh, it is really is a situation where almost any driver could win. It's been a while at, at the Cup level, though. We haven't seen somebody win one of those that nobody knows who that is. Right. Like even Trevor Bain was driving for the Wood Brothers, and he had a you. He you was heard in the, the Roush story. System, you heard the story yeah. throughout the week. You knew the car was good. Jeff Gordon was talking about uh, that he was going to work with him during the race. So you saw something coming yep. there. Yep. But just, uh, I'm waiting for the day when somebody wins the Daytona 500 that no one has heard of because they're in the right place at the right time on a restrictor plate. Yeah, I don't, I don't know who that would be. I don't know what team w would pull that off with any kind of predictability. I thought Brenda Gaughan looked really good. Yeah. So the number 75 truck won on Saturday. The number 75 cup car for Beard Motorsports or Mark yeah. Beard's team that they've yeah. only run the plate races this year. Brenda Gaughan was up leading laps and actually had a shot at it, but then got taken out of wreck just like I always wonder about this. Yeah. We were talking about wrecks. And if, if you get the buildup to the Daytona 500, now if that ever happened where, let's say in the first eight laps – of the Daytona 500, 20 cars went out and all of the stars went out. Do you think NASCAR would say, you know what, we're going to take a break here and you can pull out your backup vehicle? Remember they did that at the All-Star race. At the All-Star race. When it, when, that wasn't when an All-Star race, though. I mean, would, would they allow yeah. the – you remember when uh, – was it at Talladega where there was an Xfinity race where three cars yes. ended up going for like almost O2 the whole – 2 or 3 uh, yeah. yeah. It was like three cars for – 75% of the race. Would they allow something like that to happen during the Daytona 500? I've always wondered. I, I just think that if enough cars got involved, the likelihood is, is that some would be able to continue. Right. They, they would figure out a way to continue. You know, <laughs> maybe, maybe they would relax that crash clock. Yeah, something. I just got. I, I, can't, I can't believe that if you took all every big name star out of the Daytona 500 in like the first 10 laps, they wouldn't do something. It certainly wouldn't be the big pack. That's for sure. Yeah. 
I don't know, so that, that was subject number five there. Dan, do you have any uh, parting shots here as we head to Kansas Speedway? Looks like the Toyotas will probably be up front again. Ford has had its time in the sun. You know, it's one of those deals I told you before that you don't know what's going to happen until it's, it's over when it's over. And I think you're still in for some surprises before the end of the season. And um, let's... Um, Let's be like Dorothy on the Wizard of Oz. Let's go to Kansas. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. You never know what's going to happen, but I wouldn't want to be in Kyle Bush's way. No. Going, going into the weekend, and, I wouldn't want to be in his way. And I saw a stat. I think he's got – Kansas has been a track that's been not good to him over the years. Right. But over the last four races, I think he's gotten five straight top fives there. I don't think a top – a top five could do it. If he finishes eight positions better than Jimmy Johnson and the other drivers it, behind him. It, it depends on yeah. who finishes four, three, two, one. Yeah. 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 I think, I think the Kyle Busch will be in assassin mode, absolutely, um, for sure. Hey, one little side note here. This wasn't in our top five subjects, but this happened during the race, and it happened in, in the last stage there, Eric, but Clint Boyer was involved in the in the crash that happened at the back of the pack mm-hmm. where Cole Witt and Michael McDowell just cleaned each other out, and Boyer got caught up in it. He was a top five car all day. They used pit strategy. They called an audible a pit road that set him back, and when he got wrecked, he didn't pull into the garage. He, he was screaming at his crew chief. His crew chief, Mike Bugaravich, on the 14 team screamed back at him. So Boyer pulled into his pit stall, parked the car, got out, yelled at his crew chief, and stomped off. <laughs> hey, you know, you know that's, uh, that's the passion of racing, yeah. right? That, these are, I, I think we like to see more of that. I One time uh, years ago, I think it was in a truck race, Kyle Busch was mad at his crew at the end of the race. He stopped the truck in, like, turn three, got out of the truck, jumped over the wall, and went into the grandstands and left the truck on the, on the, on the track. And, you know, is that the right thing to do? No. But is it fun to watch? Absolutely. Yeah, we're talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. um, I, I do think, by the way, so before we go, congratulations to Brad Keselowski, a guy that a lot of times does, although maybe not on the track to other drivers, t- tends to show class elsewhere. He was running a tribute, a Godale Jr. paint scheme that resembled, sort of. If he hadn't told me it resembled it, I wouldn't have known it. Right. But the number two was supposed to look like his Navy paint scheme when he ran for Junior Motorsports back almost 10 years ago now. And so he was able to go to victory lane. He now has five Talladega victories. Dale Jr. had six. And I say yeah. had because he's not supposed to race there anymore. <laughs> but Keselowski and the Penske gang has really become formidable. I think Keselowski is. I'm, I'm I'm waiting for the Fords to get a little more speed because I think Keselowski is a very good driver. Yeah, Dan, do you think anybody could topple these Toyotas? Out of who's left, who do you think could beat the the fast Toyota Truex and potentially Denny Hamlin and Kyle Busch and Matt Kenseth? You know, it'd be hard to beat the Toyotas because just because of the season's been, but it just depends on who can find something or who can come up with something in these last races. And I've said it, I don't count anybody out. And just when you think you've got it covered, somebody else comes along. So all I'm saying is Toyotas better not rest on their laurels. They better go on and finish up what they've started because it's too easy to to lose that edge and get beat out right at the least. How far back is Jimmy Johnson right now? So Jimmy Johnson is in the cutoff position. He's in eighth. Right. He is seven points ahead of ninth place Kyle Busch. Matt Kenseth is in tenth place, one position behind Busch. And then Stenhouse is 14 points behind Kenseth, and McMurray is uh, seven I points guess this behind have There's just this Stenhouse. thing in the back of my mind. I see other this scenario where everyone in the front takes themselves out, and somehow Jimmy Johnson glides into number eight somehow. 
I, it, this year, there's been a year that it doesn't look like it. it's been this year, and he yeah. hasn't shown anything in the playoffs. But last year, that team looked dead, and then they came to the playoffs and won like four races. Yeah. So it's, it, it's this is probably true X's year, but uh, it really does. Yeah. Chase Elliott, does, I like all those him. second place finishes. Chase Elliott, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just, I, I just feel like, God goodness, and Chase Elliott, I think would have won on Sunday. I really do. If he had, if and I'm not saying it was necessarily his fault, but he put himself in a position of high risk there when, when Suarez cut across his nose by going yeah. three wide in the middle like that. Yeah, yeah, but he was going for the win. Somebody, Yeah, yeah. no guts, no glory. That's yeah. right. That's right. You make that, you're a genius. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We've seen Kozlowski do that mm-hmm. and, right. well, calls brawls too. Yeah. So Anyway, well, that does it for five to go here. A lot of stuff to talk about this week, and as these playoffs unfold, we're going to keep churning out and going deep on five subjects each week. Before we go, uh, Dan, I know you're out traveling over there. What's going on at Dawsonville this weekend that people need to come up and see about racing lore? You know, this weekend is Go Rush at Dahlonega, and there will be tons of people there, a lot of things to see and do, but then the weekend after, last weekend of the month, 27th, 28th, 29th, is Moonshine Festival at Dawsonville. That's and, always uh, fun. Don't know. Don't ask me. I don't know if they're giving away free samples. <laughs> well, I do know that at the Racing Hall of Fame, if you go and take a quote unquote tour of the moonshine still there, you can sample what you want. Let me just say that when it comes to moonshine, <laughs> it's always been samples for me. I've never actually paid for moonshine. It's always somebody going, "Hey, buddy, you want some?" On the NASCAR media tour. I think, yeah, it was 2013, the first time I went on the NASCAR media tour. Bristol, one of their, they had this whole Speedway Motorsports, like, swag bag, and Bristol had apple pie moonshine in there. Mm. Yeah, it was good. I mean, I don't even really drink, and I was like, yeah, man. And I, I like challenging things to the taste buds there. So the, so this coming weekend, the 21st around there, is going to be the Dahlonega Gold Rush Festival and then the Moonshine Festival in Dawsonville. Just a couple of exits or intersections down, right? Yeah. Is going to be at the end of the That's month. That's absolutely right. And the good thing about Moonshine Festival is the fact that, Doug, I've never seen so many cars. That's what I love going for. And we always try to take, me and Daniel always try to take something down there. And we just enjoy seeing all the people and all the cars. There's something there for everybody to see and do, but it's the cars that draw most of the people there because. You've got the the Galaxy Clubs. You've got the the Chevrolets that are there, and the Rat Rods. You've got such a variety of cars and people. It's just interesting to go see the cars. Uh, yeah, I've been before. Captain Herb and I would we've done our show up there a couple of times, and it really is a yep, lot of fun. Yeah, because the cop car was up there quite a few times. The Mayberry Patrol that's car. Right, that's yeah. correct. And then we don't have to even wait till this weekend, Eric Von Hessler, to go out and find you out on the road. Heck, it's. Tomorrow, tomorrow or today if you're listening today tomorrow. if you're listening tomorrow or whatever but it's by nine o'clock tomorrow we're going to be at uh, mad life downtown woodstock we do the uh radio show from nine to eleven and then we'll record the podcast from eleven to noon not this podcast but my daily podcast that, that's correct so you can find in all the places you find podcasts including the at the itunes podcast store the or von hessler doctrine the von hessler doctrine and then packages his two on-air hours together with his podcast hour and that's a lot of fun i love watching it on facebook live y'all have got a good setup now in the main studio yeah, that's almost, why we don't do yeah. this podcast on facebook live in this production studio anymore because they took all the live yeah. equipment we and put it, it in with the main studio where it should be well that's we still have to be the doctor von hessler doctrine 
That's the Doctor it, Von Hessler Doctrine. <laughs> he would call you that. Herb would have called you that. Yeah, Doctor Von Hessler Doctrine. Doctor Von Hessler. Well, that's a nice setup there. So go go check that out. And I went to Kirby G's and McDonough last week. He did. Yeah, and that, that was a lot of fun for a show that doesn't take any phone calls. You are great with the crowd, man. No, we have a lot of fun. I don't <laughs> like I don't like that when people do live radio shows. Uh, pe- fans show up and they they're looking at a bunch of people sitting at a table looking down. So when we do live shows, we engage with the audience during commercials everything we, we're sta- we're putting on a show and you showed a lady how to give the proper hug uh, that, I, that, I, that is not creepy but it's still affectionate <laughs> enough to count that was big i invented the non-creepy office hug can you explain to us before we go real quick what the non-creepy office hug is well first dan elliott wants to know first of all you don't yep. do, you don't do anything with your hands it's all in the <laughs> arm your hands are basically dead and you come in now i'm a tall guy so it's easier for me but you come in at an angle and you basically kind of go toward the neck and it's all in the arm and what you do is you just let the person know hey you know what i love you you're you're a good person but you don't do anything cheap. You don't try to. You don't do anything with your hands and let them roam. That's the real thing. Yeah, because if you hug somebody, you might, you might, you know, grab their arm a little arm bit. Arm is and okay. You know, arm is okay. And here's what's interesting: is it's not a side hug. It's more yeah. effect because side hug's kind of a cop out. Like that's I a cop don't out. Really no. Like you, it's it's, it's all about yeah. if you want to be non creepy and you're just a hug type of person, you just don't put the hands on places. Even right. even the back, it's okay for the hands to touch the arms, and that's about it. Oh, oh she's going bronze. <laughs> <laughs> well, we need the Von Hessler book uh, etiquette. I'm hugging. Right. Yes, we have too many. Uh, it, uh, really, the best way to do it is just not be creepy. Hey, and did you know? Did they tell you afterwards the lady that you did the sample? Uh, the hug example on did they tell I you what she her, did i spoke to her later i didn't get what she said so in front of the crowd because you guys had your back to the crowd when you did it right she reached her hand down and fake played with your butt no no really yeah funny. yeah i did actually i enjoyed that <laughs> it's okay for her to be creepy yeah. i'm not gonna i'm not it gonna was, call it HR. was an air goose yes it was an air. <laughs> are you sure it was a her uh i'm pretty positive Okay. <laughs> this is a great way to end, folks. Okay, so we, we gave you about seven or eight to go today, but this yeah. is the five to go podcast here either Monday or Tuesday each week. And now we're on iTunes. Hey. We are on iTunes. Thanks to our digital department getting us hooked up. So find us there. Thanks to PRN and WSB for letting us jam. And Dan and Eric, I appreciate you guys. Thank you. Take care, y'all. We'll see Thank you. Thank you.